Okay, so Greg, tell me about um, how do you introduce yourself as an international educator in China? Ooh, um, well, it's it's a weird thing because like I'm a I'm a big white guy, so I say I'm a teacher, and everyone says English, um, <laughs> and they want. I mean, I suppose it depends on where I am. People have a different idea of what it means to be an international teacher. Yeah. So. In China, they assume that I teach English uh, to kids on the side, like you know, after school sort of stuff. Um, when I'm back in America, people think I'm like some missionary paddling down the river to, you know, read to the children in huts uh, of people who aren't very well traveled, at least. So yeah, I mean, I and then when I say international school, that means different things too. So uh, for example, my school is international in curriculum and in staff, but then the students are all from China and, um, you know, so you have to deal with a mindset of, that's very local of the students and of the parents, but uh, the school is otherwise international. Do people ask you where you're from and do you tell them the truth that you're from India? <laughs> um, well, that, that's funny because like I, teaching in international schools for so long, you have a lot of kids where they don't know how to answer where you're from and you, you know, third culture kids. And, and I consider myself sort of a third culture adult where right. <laughs> I, I was born and raised in pretty much the same place. But then as an adult, I left. And I think I left the U.S. when I was 23. And yeah. I've only lived there for one year total. So I feel like I have a story behind where I'm from. I say I'm from the U.S. originally, but I lived abroad for 10 years. I lived five and a half years in India and four years in Hong Kong. And then people go, oh, wow, wow, wow. How, India, how was that? Yeah. Um, I'm like, okay, you don't actually want an answer. I'm like, cool, yeah, I liked it. Uh, but there's probably about a, two books I could, read, I could write about it. You were, you were saying that you started uh, working, you were telling me about Mexico a little bit. Is that yeah. where your first job as an international teacher? <laughs> yeah, so I was graduating. And then I went to a job fair to, uh, for the next year, and I was looking at all these inter, uh, local schools, you know, going to work in a public school back in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember handing my resume to, to these people, and they had a stack, like, you know, of hundreds of resumes that they were collecting. And, and uh, I remember I was told beforehand, just talk to anyone. Just get experience interviewing, get experience talking to people. I'm like, sure, why not? So I talked talk to the school in Mexico, and. Um, in hindsight, there were a lot of red flags there because we didn't actually talk about teaching. We talked about like just everyday things and then they offered me a job and um, basically I could breathe and speak English. So they, they hired me. Um, I, I value that experience because I hated working there. I hated the town I was in and I hated the school. Uh -huh. um, but to me, to start off with the worst job of your career is definitely not the worst thing in the world uh, because it's given me such an appreciation for everything that's came at, that's come after. And at every school I've worked at, there's been some teacher where that's their first or second job and they start complaining about things. And I'm like, oh, you have no idea what's out there. How did you decide to move to India? I had visited India before with my church. Um, and uh, we went to go just visit and uh, then I left and I was like, oh, India school, I like it. Um, and then I got an email from somebody I had met there saying, hey, 
there's a school you can come work at. Uh, it's a it's an international Christian school. It's in the mountains. You know, I've been there a few times, and I'm like, cool, why not? So I applied, um, and then it turns out that one of the women who uh, was in charge of hiring used to go to my church back home. So um, yeah, it was a, a bit of a weird connection that I got the job and. I was in completely over my head working there that, uh, you know, I, I remember the, the, I was teaching religion and the first day I see it on the curriculum, you're teaching about Hinduism and I'm like, okay, so I am teaching Hinduism to a class about half of the students are Hindu. Uh I have read a book about Hinduism once. Uh, Mm -hmm. what am I doing? But I mean, I adjusted, (laughs) I learned. Yeah. And it was five years there. huh? Yeah. I mean, I taught religion there, I taught uh, history and psychology, and it was all, it all was pretty good. Did you know that you were on the, on the path to working internationally as an educator at that point? Oh, that's a good question. Um, definitely not with Mexico. Mexico was sort of like, I speak Spanish and I got a job, yay, you um, know, really naive. When I moved to India... I don't think at the time when I first moved there, I, I knew I was going to stay abroad. I think it was uh, probably about three or four years in that I, I realized that I don't think I want to move back right now. And then I would say now, like if you ask me right now, I don't plan on moving back to the U.S. anytime soon, um, possibly ever. Why did you not stay in the States as an educator? Has this got something to do with your background of traveling internationally or like living? You didn't live in the States growing up. Oh, yeah, definitely. I didn't really leave the U.S. until I was like 14, I think. I went to Mexico, like a border town once. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I got my degree as a teacher and the only job I got offered was the one in Mexico. So I went and I came back and I applied for jobs and I couldn't find anything. and then. Uh, I worked one year, a uh, part-time teacher is all I could find. And they let me know in about February that my job was not going to be there next year. They're getting rid of it. Mm. Um, so I applied for jobs for six months, I think, uh, all the way through the summer. Um, and nobody would hire me because I had, what, two years experience. And, you know, it's a pretty f- saturated field for social studies teachers in, in my hometown. So, um yeah, I ended up looking abroad and then I decided to stay abroad because I think uh, in general, I mean, I can speak mostly for Asia where I've worked. Uh, teachers are more respected. International teachers are usually better paid than back home in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's perks. I get to travel a place that I don't get to travel very much. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of positives about international teaching. Um I I mean, you do meet some people, some Americans, and I think this is true for any country, you meet some Americans who are abroad and they talk about how much they hate their country. I don't. I I appreciate my country and and I really value my, my, where I grew up and where I was raised, but, so I don't hate my country, but I don't really feel like I, I belong there anymore. Like, I feel like, I don't know, I'm a person of the world. Person of the world, huh? Well, yeah, that works. <laughs> Tell me about that switch from India to Hong Kong. When I decided to leave India, I went to another international job fair. and I didn't consider going back. I, I considered other schools and other countries, especially looking in Asia. Uh, moving to Hong Kong from India was like, 
I mean, I love my time in India, but I was also on a hillside in the mountains. Um, you know, Dehradun is a, is a, actually, it, it grew quite big while I was there. I remember when I first moved to Dehradun, if I wanted to see, an, or to uh, Missouri, if I wanted to see an English movie, I would have to go to Delhi. I remember if I wanted, like, Western food, I, there was, like, a place in Missouri that sold pizza and that had just opened. And then there was like a uh, McDonald's in Dehradun. So yeah. <laughs> and yes, things grew and, and became more diverse over time, but moving to Hong Kong, I all of a sudden had everything. I could find pork. I could find beef. Uh-huh. I could find good Indian food, which is now very important to me. Um, and I still, every time I go to an Indian restaurant, I, I, with, with my friends who aren't Indian, at least, I insist on ordering because you don't know what you want. You can't mix butter chicken and vindaloo. You can't do that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so there was a period of just being overwhelmed by everything in Hong Kong. Yeah. But I was also trying to be very intentional about it um, and take advantage of what I didn't have the opportunity to do before. So like uh, I started um, tap dance lessons and I really tried to make friends with people from all different backgrounds and um, just sort of live in a big city, which I've never really done before. I grew up very suburban and then I moved to India, which was more rural. So um, just taking advantage of things like museums and, uh, and art and culture and performances and all that that I never had the chance to do. Tell me about the dance classes. You look really confident in your pictures. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I, yeah, I don't know. I just like doing it. It's something I picked up when I moved to Hong Kong. I'm not, I mean, if you look at me and you don't know how to dance, people think I'm really good. But if people do know how to dance, they're like, you're okay. How did you decide to get into swing dancing? I mean, when I think of, see, I'm not, I know nothing about swing dancing. I know nothing about jazz. If you tell me something like that, I think about Malcolm X because I've seen swing dancing in the movie. Yeah, uh, actually, yeah, a lot of the people who choreograph that are, like, they were teachers. Um, a lot, some of them were, like, the original dancers uh, that you'll see in that movie. And some of the dancers, like, one of the guys who was in that big dance scene, he taught, a, taught me a class last weekend. He was visiting. In Malcolm X, in the film. Yeah, the big swing dance scene. Uh, wow. Apparently, he was one of the dancers in that scene. Wow, that's crazy. And so, is like your, are your dance classes actually like that? Uh, I mean, they were doing choreography, which right. is a part of swing dancing. I don't really like it very much. I just do the social dancing where you have a partner, you make it up as you go, you respond to the song, you know, and your partner responds to the song and to what you're doing, and you respond to your partner. Uh, if your partner is good, then it's really useful and, and fun. And if your partner is bad, then your challenge is sort of like, well, how do I still enjoy this? And how do I, you know, help her have a good time? So actually I started when I moved to Hong Kong, I was doing tap and, uh, well, I, I started just as something like, okay, when I lived in India, I, what did I not have a chance to do, uh, that I do now that I'm in a big city. So I started doing tap lessons and then, um, uh, I remember one time there was a class where our teacher asked us, like, do you guys only do tap or do you do something else? And we all said, we only do tap. And he said, be dancers. So I try something else. Um, and uh, a friend of mine was had done swing dancing. And so I asked him, like, hey, tell me about it. I showed up, took a few classes. And 
there's what what's called like new dance or hell. You sort of you're in charge of the dance in a lot of ways, but you don't know what you're doing. So it's it's just this horrible period of like um, uh, anxiety and self doubt and failure and yeah. But I got through it, and I think it's good. Like for as somebody who has never been a very much of an athlete or like not very much of a physical person, it's it's a great experience to sort of learn how to do something. And, and I, I mean, I'm not a great dancer, but I'm competent and I can have fun and people dance with me and they say that I'm fun. So that's a victory for me. So it's just something that you just wanted to do on the side? Yeah. And then I just sort of got into it and I have a lot of friends who dance and it's a great way to travel, um, like to go to a town and you get to meet a few people going dancing, a few local people usually. Uh, there are events that they hold all over the world um, uh, that where teachers come and there are parties. So that's what I'm doing this this summer in France where I can meet a bunch of people from Europe and from America and a few of us from Asia are going there too. So yeah, turned out to be a pretty good ha- hobby to have. So this started off in Hong Kong. How long were you there for? Uh, four years total. Tell me a bit about that school there. Was that uh, also an international school? Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's weird because I've, I've worked at so many different types of international schools in like the four that I've taught. At, uh, I feel like they're all completely different. So in Hong Kong, I worked at one school that was, um, it's sort of out in the middle of the countryside of Hong Kong, which there is a rural part of, of Hong Kong people don't know about. And that one was interesting. I mean, they try to utilize the nature a lot. They try to make themselves very different in a lot of ways like uh hong kong international schools sort of have a reputation that you push your kid really hard they work to themselves to the bone they stress out because you're supposed to be stressed out um and this school tried to do something really different and be very relational and friendly and keep things very small and then the second school was sort of the complete opposite of that where I remember at one point, uh, one teacher talking to a group of eighth graders said, if you're not stressed, you're at the wrong school. And <laughs> Well, that sounds kind of like Indian school. Now, of course, at this point, you moved from Hong Kong to Beijing, and that's got to be completely different culturally. There is, a, I mean, there is a change, definitely. Like, there's things that are broadly Chinese. Um, like, you know, family is very important, and the families tend to be small, both in Hong Kong and mainland China. Um, for different reasons, you know, one-child policy uh, in China and then the uh, just small apartments and expensive life in Hong Kong sort of keep families quite a bit smaller there. Um, Okay. You know, Chinese value hard work and like working in a school, math and science is is very valuable to them. Um, um, So, yeah, there are things that are broadly the same, but moving to Beijing from Hong Kong, like, there's a cultural shift uh, in terms of openness. And I'm a, I'm a historian, so I know like uh, South China has always been interacting with the world through trade and Indian Ocean trade um, with Southeast Asia and whatnot. But Northern China has always been very closed off. So I feel that sort of cultural uh, closedness or cultural coldness, I guess you might say, that um, that's more prevalent up here. Uh, English is definitely not as common up, up in Beijing. You're actually, you're making Hong Kong sound similar to Singapore. Oh, oh they compare each other all the time. Or really? Hong Kong compares itself to Singapore all the time, yeah. Uh, at least in the newspapers or in the media, they do. 
they were sort of the first rich Asian cities in well, the 70s, 80s. Yeah. Um, um, in Hong Kong, there, I mean, there's a lot more freedom there. So you can talk about anything you want. Uh, you can discuss whatever you want. People are a bit more open to new ideas than in Beijing. But th that's also a broad generalization. I'm talking about a city of millions of people here. Sure. So, uh, But I would say, generally speaking, this is the seat of government. And the Chinese government is fairly conservative in a lot of ways. They don't make big changes very quickly. So um, I think that's safe to say. Culturally as well, um, is it very different historically? I mean, have you gone to see the Forbidden City? Is there much more of that in terms of culture to go and do in Beijing than there was in Hong Kong? Yeah, in terms of like being, a, if, you, if you're talking about being a traveler or a tourist, um, Hong Kong is a bit short on sites. Like, uh, there's not a lot of like, oh, wow, look at this ancient thing. Um, they have like a giant Buddha statue that was built like 15 years ago. Um, you know, the harbor is pretty. But when you come to Beijing, it's sort of overloaded with things to do and see all these, you know, old temples, Forbidden City, the Great Wall. Yeah. Um, I'm actually kind of bad. Like, I have not really gone out of my way to go and see all these things. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> I've been to, uh, I went to the Great Wall a few weeks ago when a friend came to visit. Oh, but, yeah. uh, oh and I've been to the, to the uh, Confucius Temple. Wow. But otherwise, I drive by these things and I don't even think about it sometimes. What was the Great Wall like? Describe it to me. Yeah, I mean, it's a big wall. Uh, I went there <laughs> on a holiday. Um, yeah, it's a big wall. I went to one part of it that's uh, right by a lake, so it's quite pretty. And the peach blossoms were um, were out, so there were these uh, soft. Oh gosh, what color were they? I think they were pink. <laughs> uh, these pink flower trees all over with the wall, the lake. So it was quite quite uh, pristine and pretty and um, there were a lot of people there <laughs> and that's the thing about going to like the main section of the Great Wall that people go to it connects to the Beijing Metro so that's where everybody goes uh -huh. um, this one I, I joined a tour group um, well really it's just four tourists to go uh, go catch a bus to this place and and even then there were still a lot of people to walk around the wall with you're never alone here. So it's not like how it is in the pictures, obviously. It's just you go. It's like uh, any other big tourist, tourist <laughs> thing. Or even in India, you want to go and see, um, you know, if you want to go to Old Delhi and see the masjids, there's actually just a lot of tourists over there. Right? It's like that. But, I mean, in India, a lot of the places you go to, like in, in Delhi, let's say, it, it, they're still functional. Like the masjid is, is still working. You know, people go there because that's their mosque. Um, yeah. And, you know, Old Delhi's overflowing with people because that's where they live. And right. with uh, the Great Wall, it's all tourists that are going there. Um, China, Chinese tourism is very domestically oriented. Uh, so for me as a foreigner who, like, a lot of the Chinese tourists will go in groups. So for me as a foreigner and as a more independent traveler, so I've, it's happened multiple times. I'll show up at a place and I won't know where to go. I'll be looking for a sign for an entrance or a ticket booth or something and i'm just wandering around there's people everywhere and i'm like where where do i go so and that's kind of funny because for most chinese they just are with their tour guide and their tour guide knows where to go so right. uh why would anybody else not be on a tour so it actually happened with the great wall my friend and i got left behind by our tour guide <laughs> uh, who was really just supposed to show us the entrance and we could not figure out where to go what about the Forbidden City? Did you go there? 
I, you know, I've seen it. Um, I went to a park last weekend uh, that right by the Forbidden City. It was a park built for the emperor with a hill that overlooks the pagoda on the top and it overlooks the Forbidden City. But no, it's one of the things I've been bad about and I haven't seen yet. In terms of international schools, the one that you're at in Beijing right now, they can be a bit of a bubble, um, also liberal and inclusive. Yeah, it's more American. I would say, like our for history, our textbooks are American, um, but there are also these rules. Like for the middle school, up until grade nine, I think it is, there has to be a Chinese teacher in the room officially teaching the class uh, because history, and that's we're the only subject. History and social studies, the only subject where that happens. We do have to be slightly careful because China controls its history. And the stories that you tell pretty carefully. Yeah. Um, so there, you know, you. I actually had to sign something at the beginning of the year saying I won't, like, go against the the Communist Party. Um, and I'm sure there's very broad interpretation of what that means. Um, I take it as you know, I'm not starting a revolution. And really, just to be safe, like as a foreign teacher, especially, I I actually know Chinese history. I taught it for two years, uh, IB level, but um, I just. Sort of pretend I don't know very much about the 20th century, <laughs> uh, when the you know anything from the communist era I don't touch on very much. That's interesting. So, but uh, do you ever see your kids asking questions that are probably a little outside of this context that you're talking about? Mm, they, I mean, they know better than I do about what not to say. Um, so I don't. I mean, if anybody who asks a question that they're not supposed to, it's me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what do you feel when you look at the world in terms of the growing sentiments of nationalism and with populism on the rise? Yeah. So as a teacher, I have to straddle a bit of a line mm-hmm. where on one hand, I think it is valuable that the people connect with a people group. And for many, that is their country or their okay. language or their culture. And to sort of unroot un- or unroot pull out the roots of a kid in terms of their their values or their cultural values that can be dangerous on the other hand their nationalism can be quite dangerous as well if you're too so rooted and so set in your people group and in your culture so i have to encourage kids to grow individually and find their people and connect with their people but also go out into the world and be a part of it and be comfortable with anybody that you come across. So for my kids now in China, I'm pretty sure they are all Han Chinese. They're all native uh, Chinese speakers. And that is almost all that they know. Um, So I've actually talked to some of my students going off to the U S or Canada or wherever for university. Like, yes, you know, find your Chinese friends. Please do. You need to have time to feel comfortable being yourself and talking to yourself. But you also need to go out and find, like, get to know other people. Take advantage of the opportunity. So I think I'm answering your question on sort of a micro level. Like, for an individual kid, I, there's value in the middle of being comfortable with yourself and to um, take advantage advantage of the world around you and to learn from it and to contribute to it. I think on a national level or on an international level, um, I think the same thing, I I can't think of a good example, but there can be a country that 
that sort of destroys its history and doesn't doesn't value its its culture very much at all and just tries to like hurtle wildly into the future but there's also countries that are so rooted in the past and themselves and their nationalism that it becomes very harmful and dangerous to not be a part of that people group um and i know india is a country that struggles with this sometimes as well as a teacher i see both sides of it um and i'm always trying to encourage a healthy respect for where one comes from and a big part of a student's identity as a teenager is to find their people so uh not everybody finds it in their nas- in their nation some find it in their ethnicity or their religion some find it in their uh i don't know uh hobbies and some will find it in passions that they have and some will find it online and some will find it in in their sexuality or or whatever and i think all of that is valuable but um it can definitely go too far to the point that you exclude others or harm others. I remember when globalization started to happen and like really affect and change the world, we were kind of hurtling into a certain future. And we kind of thought we knew what it yeah. was in terms of inclusiveness, in terms of cultures coming together, in terms of the world becoming a smaller place. But actually the world isn't a small place. It is not becoming a smaller place. And that's when we saw the rise yeah. of uh, these movements that were basically talking about identity and culture and the richness of that and i think what you're saying is that as we go into the future there actually needs to be a little bit of both yeah i mean from my point of view if you move too fast uh, into into the future you end up with a backlash i think nationalism nationalism is often a result of that backlash or that's how it how it comes out in a lot of ways uh and then you end up with this sort of like this sort of far left and far right i'm sort of uh considering american politics slightly right now too uh, you end up with a far left and a far right that are at odds with each other if you find a moderate path you uh find a way to gradually make life better and improve quality of life for everybody but you don't do it so fast that people can't keep up and then they just end up rejecting the whole thing so finally in terms of the future i'm hearing that international education and travel living in different places different parts of the world those things are linked for you where do you go from here yeah. oh that's a great question um i sort of live my life one school contract at a time so uh <laughs> i'm in a place two or three years and then really if i decide to move on from any different from a school or from a place uh it's a lot of rolling the dice like um for teaching you never know where your next job is going to be it's rare that you are that well connected that you can just seamlessly go into your dream job mm-hmm. um i suppose a lot of us are always looking for a dream job but uh you know we we do the best we can with what we have so yeah um and in terms of travel like for, you know my travel habits have changed quite a bit that i'm much more concerned now about uh seeing people and and really valuing relationships and experiences over sites yeah um so uh it doesn't you, you know I was just talking to a friend of mine about like there's I've seen so many temples and churches and mosques and and uh stupas and all that that I, they just don't excite me anymore but um let me go with a friend to these places and and it's a much better thing or um I sometimes I'd rather just like hang out and have like a 3 hour dinner with a bunch of random people that I just met. So that's something I've I've come to value quite a bit more or going to travel to a place just to visit someone. I've already been there, but 
I'm just going to hang out with my friends. So, yeah. Hey, thanks for being with me on this podcast. It was great to have you over. It's been great to talk. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. I want to have you again. Where are you traveling to next? I mean, just generally. Oh, man. Uh, I'm going to the summer, just a weekend or a long weekend in Taiwan. Uh, oh. And then to Italy and France uh-huh. um, for a few weeks. And then I don't know after that. It's into the next school year. So.